take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, just a couple of quick things for you. Um, okay, let's get the awkward out of the way with, I'm wearing a suit. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, today, what we asked was, if, if they could, for a number of our volunteers uh, to wear their ugly Christmas outfits. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that, not the least of which, it's fun, it's festive, it's obnoxious, and that's my favorite. Um, but actually, one of the other reasons uh, we asked them to do that is, and they don't know this, is it gives us an opportunity to identify those people who have been volunteering. And so let me ask, actually, this is also for all of our safety. So if you are a volunteer with us and you are wearing an ugly sweater or Christmas outfit or bright and over-the-top Christmas thing, would you stand where you are? Just stand where you are. We want to say thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And, And because God is good, Patrick didn't stand up and show us his outfit, so we're thankful. Um, We're... (laughs) That was another reason to do that, is if you did not see somebody stand up, don't walk up to them and congratulate them on their ugly sweater. Uh, It's a trap. Now, we're grateful for our our volunteers. Um, Just another quick reminder, Christmas Eve, it is this week. It is filling and filled in some spots already, so if you have not registered, I would encourage you to do that. If you are here this morning and you have questions about registration for Christmas Eve or any Christmas Eve questions, as you leave uh, our building this morning over in the corner where the angel tree was, uh, we will have a Q&A spot for you. You can stop there and, and get some assistance with that. Also, as you leave this morning, uh, we do have our, our um, next month of prayer requests for our global partner. Uh, this month, our global partner, um, it's the Hundermarks, so I'm encourage you to stop and get one of those cards. It slips into your little magnet thing. If you didn't get a magnet, you can stop by the uh, connections desk and get a magnet as well, um, but we'd encourage you to take one of these and, and be praying for our, our global partners. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me ask you a, a very riveting question. What is so great about Christmas? Jesus, there it was. I was hoping I would get that. That's perfect. The Sunday school answer, Jesus. And everybody's like, amen, we're in church. It's Jesus. But let's be real for a second. Presents. Is that, is that like some horrible thing that I just did or what? What was that? You guys awake? Well, that was, that was kind of creepy, actually. Presents. Exactly, it's presents. Everybody's excited about presents. Everyone's presents. Christmas morning, I know your children are sanctified completely and holy. And so as they come down the stairs, they're like, I want to talk about Jesus for an hour. <laughs> right? I mean, that's your kids. That's my kids for sure. You know, no. They come down, they're like, presents. Presents. It's the greatest thing. What's the, what's the best Christmas present you think you got? Just think about that for a second. What's that? It's that great Christmas gift. I mean, you think about the story of Christmas. I mean, did anybody in here give birth on Christmas Day? Anybody? Okay. I don't know if that's really a good gift, but... Sorry, I said that out loud, didn't I? All right, cool. But think about it. It's like, a good, good idea. I'm going to go be in agony and pain for a few hours. Yeah, no, I'll move along there. How about a picture? Anybody give you a picture of themselves for Christmas before? That's like the most arrogant gift you can possibly give to somebody. Hey, Merry Christmas. Now, even when I'm out here, you get to look at me and think of me. Merry Christmas. Anybody get engaged on Christmas Day? 
Amen. All right. Okay. Good. We got that. Cool. That's a great gift, a promise of what's to come. And what I want to look at this morning is be reminded that we have a gift that offers more than just the promise of an engagement ring. We have a, a gift that's way more personal than just a picture. <laughs> I just realized how corny this is, but it works. We have a presence that is given to us that makes Christmas that much more amazing. And so as you heard Jen reading our text this morning in verse 13, Paul begins again, in him. I mean, this just keeps getting repeated over and over again. In him, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Right there is the explanation, the description of what it means to be in him. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The idea of being in him is hearing the good news of salvation. What is the good news of salvation? Let me let me, um, I've said and repeated a couple of things in the last few weeks, but let me this time share a quote from a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller who just defines the good news of salvation like this. It's understanding that you and I are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the good news of your salvation. We are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared to believe, and yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, now please don't be overwhelmed by the verse. You think, the world is so big. That's not the point of that verse, that he loved so many people. No, 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 no. God loved a place that was so desperately wicked that he gave his only son. And through the blood of his son, we can have redemption. And if you have accepted his free gift of salvation, or as this passage says, you have believed in him, you have heard about your sin and you have uh, admitted that you're a sinner, you have confessed that you need a savior and you've trusted in Jesus to be that savior. And as a result, Jen, Jen laid it out for us, what we've talked about, you've been adopted, you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven, you've been given this inheritance and, and you can stop right there and have yourself a merry little Christmas, right? But what we're told this morning is that upon salvation... You were purchased by God and given a taste of what is to be yours for all of eternity. And that the purchase and the down payment, as this text talks about, has come through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just call a spade a spade, okay? Most of us sitting in this room know very little about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Why? A couple of reasons. The New Testament talks way more about Jesus and God the Father than it does about the Holy Spirit. Another reason is because the actual work of the Holy Spirit is to first and foremost, above everything else, to glorify or make much of Jesus Christ, to point to Jesus. So so when you are drawn to Jesus for him to be your savior. When, when you are brought to a place of wonder and awe as you gaze at Jesus, as you're led to worship Jesus as Lord, all of those things are happening because the Holy Spirit is doing his work in us. And so you may not know much about him, but he is working in you. And, and so most churches, most Christians, focus on Jesus and not the Spirit because that's the focus of the New Testament and that's the focus of the Holy Spirit himself. And, and, and so let me be really clear and just an evaluation of my own preaching that right there is more than I've said about the Holy Spirit in the last five years here at Uniontown. 
So with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to do a quick five-minute theology class. You up for it? You know how fast I can talk, right? You sure you're up for it? <laughs> and you got to look at this at the same time. So you're all going to walk out of here like, I just saw a light. I don't know what it was. All right, so we're going to do a quick five-minute course. Let me throw some resources up here for you. I'll put this up again at the end of our um, quick five-minute course. Of course, my remote... Oh, it did work. Okay. So here's five different books that I would suggest to you. And the order of these resources, I've done it on purpose and intentionally. They're from the, the easiest to read. Like, you could sit down and just plow through it and read it and, and gain an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is to the best that somebody could actually do that. To the, to the more uh, textual and academic and difficult, okay? Forgotten God by Francis Chan is my personal favorite work on the Holy Spirit. It's very devotional in nature, but so is Jesus Continued by J.D. Greer, pastor down in uh, Carolina. Then you've got uh, the Holy Spirit written by Sinclair Ferguson, which actually is a good intermediate spot. So you've got very devotional with the first two. The middle one is somewhat academic, but has devotional in there. Mystery of the Holy Spirit by R.C. Sproul. Your head starts to hurt. And then you get to John Walford's work on the Holy Spirit, and you're like, huh? It's deep, it's hefty, um, and it's on my bookshelf. <laughs> you get credit for that, don't you? Okay, so here we go. I'm going to leave that up there. I'll put it up there again at the end, and then um, we'll get this posted up on, on Facebook later today so you'd, you can see those as well. And I would encourage you and, and recommend them and, and, and encourage you to jump into those. So let's, let's, here we go. Um, when I say I'm flying, I mean I am flying. Okay, so who is the Holy Spirit? First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is a person. He isn't an invisible force. He's not a mode of God's existence. He's not even a part of God or an activity of God. The Holy Spirit is a person in and of himself. We can see that as we trace through Scripture traits of his personhood. And this isn't all-inclusive by any stretch, but here are a few traits of his personhood. First, uh, he's a person who, who teaches. What we're told in Luke chapter 12 is, is that Jesus is saying, you're, you're going to be brought before authorities, and, and they're going to be persecuting you, and yet and the Holy Spirit himself is going to teach you at that very hour what must be said. He is a person who teaches. He is a person who intercedes for us. This is precious verses, particularly Romans 8, 26 the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we don't even know what to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit, knowing that we don't even have words to formulate on our lips, he intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. He carries those things into the presence of the Father. So the Holy Spirit is a person who intercedes for us. You get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. We see he is a person who can be grieved. Paul encourages, do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not just a person. He's a divine person. The Holy Spirit is eternal God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, where he talks about uh, who, how much more through the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, through the eternal Spirit. So not only is he a person, he is a eternally divine person. In fact, when you get into the story of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when they have uh, money that is given to them for the purchase of a land, and they, they say they're going to bring an offering and give it all, they're actually lying to people. They're lying to God, and Peter says to them in Acts chapter 5, um, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, so, so there's, there's a person thing there too, but divine person, you get to the end of that text, he says, you've not lied to people, you have lied to God. 
And so we see the, 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 the alignment of the Holy Spirit being a divine person. He is God, but he's not just a person. He's not just a divine person. He is a divine person, a divine member of the Trinity. And that's a whole nother theological treatise that we would have to go on. But the Trinity is the understanding that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal but distinct. So to say it as simply as I can, the Holy Spirit is God, but, but he's not the Father, and he's not the Son. He's his own unique divine person. We see that come up in a number of places. Probably the most familiar is in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus gives the command to the disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's, he's talking about them individually and unified together, and so he, he speaks to that. So, so the Holy Spirit is a divine member of the Trinity. He is a person, not a force, a person. What does the Holy Spirit do? I am really going to sell this short because I could go on forever about this one, but for time's sake, I'll just run through a few things, okay? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. John chapter 16, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin. He also converts Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus, says the only thing, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, only the Holy Spirit brings about new life. Only the Holy Spirit can bring somebody into to being born again. It says it again in John chapter 6. The Spirit is the one who gives life. So he converts. The Holy Spirit also, we talked about this a little bit earlier, makes much of Jesus Christ. He says, the primary aspect, the primary responsibility, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify me, is what Jesus says. He'll take what is mine and he'll, he'll declare it to you. The Holy Spirit distributes gifts to equip and bring unity to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11 says, one and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills, whatever those gifts may be. He's going to continue to distribute those to the church so the church can grow into the full maturity of Jesus Christ, and we can represent him well in this, this culture that we live in. So, like I said, we're going to fly through it. That was it. And all my seminary professors just filed a motion to revoke my degree. And again, there's those resources for you. So, so that, again, it is so deep and so fulfilling to jump in and study who the Holy Spirit is, particularly because, and I mean it, and I think if you were honest, you would admit it, he is the person, head of, person of the Godhead that we understand the least. So what does the Holy Spirit do according to this passage that we're in this morning? In him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. What this passage is telling us this morning is the work of the Holy Spirit shows us who owns us and gives us a taste of what's to come. It says the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Sealing is about ownership. Okay, in those days, you had a couple of different ways that this word would be used. Um, people would brand their cattle. That was a type of seal. That way everybody knew who the cattle belonged to. You would seal letters. You would seal other objects with, with the wax and the signet ring to, to make sure that everybody knew this was from me, and you would, you would put that seal on there. And that sealing pictures ownership. It's owned by the person who, who owns the seal. And so when God's Holy Spirit 
You, you, you hear the good news of your salvation and you believe in him through Jesus Christ. What you have been given is the gift of being owned by God. You belong to God. Here's, here's, here's a little something for you. It's a, it's a, again, resources. I should have put this on the list. This is actually probably the greatest resource to help you understand this concept. Um, it's the great theological work called Toy Story. Anybody ever seen that? Toy Story? Don't leave me hanging. Come on, you heathen. All right, there you go. All right, you love Jesus. You saw Toy Story. We're good. It's a fascinating, I don't even know what it is anymore. It's not a trilogy anymore. It's like a, an epic. I mean, the thing just keeps going. It's very popular. Let's just go with that. Um, through through the, the, the entire storyline of Toy Story, you go to the first one. I'll just do the first two, not the whole things. That's why I dressed up like this. But the first one, um, Buzz Lightyear uh, shows up in front of all the other toys. <laughs> Again, my seminary profs are like, nope. <laughs> um, so he approaches the slinky dog and, uh, and Rex. And this is his comment. Hey there, lizard and stretchy dog. Can I show you something? It looks as though I've been accepted in your culture. Your chief, Andy, inscribed his name on me. Because you know in the movie what happens, right? At the bottom of the foot of all the toys, there's a name that is written. And Buzz is, is trying to figure this out. He says, look, I, it's got his name written on it. Andy. You fast forward to Toy Story 2, and I'm certainly leaping over much, but you get to Toy Story 2, and there's a few things that happen. You've got um, Woody is kidnapped by the, the thief, right? And so he hires an artist to just kind of remodel Woody and make him so that he's presentable and will sell for more in Japan. He's trying to go bring him to auction. And so, so the old guy's there, he's got all his tools, he's doing his things. And one of the last things that the artist does is he flips up the foot of Woody and it says Andy on it. And he takes a paintbrush and he's like... And it seems like the name is gone. And you watch the, the ups and the downs, the heartache, the angst of Woody... He doesn't know where he belongs. He doesn't know who he belongs to. He's having this, this midlife crisis like every toy has. And there's one scene where he looks at the bottom of his foot and sees a little something and begins to scratch. And he scratches the paint off the bottom of his foot to reveal the name Andy. In that same movie in Jesse and Bullseye show up with the rest of the toys and they are overwhelmed when they receive that same name on the bottom of their shoe. It is so juvenile and yet so incredibly profound. In Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has written God's name on your foot so that you might know who owns you, so that everyone might know who owns you, and so that in the darkest of days, you'd be reminded, he's got you. That's what the Holy Spirit's done for us. He's 
written on us the truth that we are his. He sealed us. But we also find out that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment of what's to come. He's given us a a portion of what we get to expect. Our future inheritance. We talked about that last week. Our, Our eternity. That precious gift that is going to be given to us. It's not possessions. It's the one who possesses us. It's not about stuff. It's about our Savior. It's not about what. It's about who. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a sort of down payment, Paul says, to remind us of what's coming. So let me explain that for a second. The goal, from, from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, the goal has been God's presence with us. As you, as you trace the whole storyline of Scripture, starting in Genesis, and you begin to look at that with, with that understanding, God, God's presence with us. We, we continue to tr- look, and you see in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, you've got Adam and Eve existing in the perfect garden, and the, there is no sin, and, and they're in perfect fellowship with the Father. They're in perfect fellowship with God. He, he walks through the garden, he talks with them, they have this incredible relationship, the very presence of God is is there, and then the fall. And there's a separation. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. And, and, and honestly, it would have been enough for God just to say, that's it, I'm done. Every right to do that. But he didn't. Instead, you... Turn a few pages in Genesis and you get to the story of Abraham as God calls Abraham out of a land and promises him a future. He promises him a lineage. He promises him a great blessing and the fact that through him many will be blessed. And you read through the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and you get to the end of Genesis and and they're all in Egypt. And you turn the page, you get to Exodus chapter 1, and they're all in Egypt and everything's being provided for. And then suddenly there are an oppressed people. They're being tormented by their Egyptian slave handlers. And and the the, the people begin to cry out to God for deliverance. Would you rescue us? Would you remove us from this? And and, and God appears to Moses in that epic story of the burning bush where where Moses is like, that thing is still burning. I should... I should figure out what's going on. And he approaches the bush and God begins to speak to him. And God says to him, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to lead my people out of their captivity. I want you to bring them out. And and Moses, as you go, as you go, I want you to know something. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Who, 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 Who should I tell them sent me? Who should I tell them is with me? God's response is overwhelming when you try to sit down and understand it. He says, tell them I am sent you. It's not a past verb. It's not a future verb. It's an ever-present verb. I am. God always is, always was, always will be. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He is always with you. Moses, go, and I will be with you, for I am always with you. 
Moses, you know the story, heads into Egypt, and the Egyptians welcomed him with open arms. They got to see all of his wonderful magic tricks, and, they, and Moses gets to the point where he is leading the Israelites, millions of people, out of the land of Egypt, and they head into the wilderness. And, and what happens in the wilderness? Moses got a flashlight. Moses has his GPS on. Now, the very presence of God arrives and leads them by a, a fiery pillar at night and a pillar of cloud by day. The presence of God remains with his people. He, we, the, the tabernacle is built. This pillar of flame comes down from heaven and exists in the tabernacle. It's a picture of the very presence of God being with his people years and years later when they're finally in the promised land. This beautiful temple is constructed. And it stands in the, the middle of Jerusalem. This is, this is going to be the, the nation's meeting place with God himself. They're going to come to the temple because God's presence dwells in the temple. It's an invitation to all the nations around the world to, to gather and meet with God there. And when, when King Solomon finishes the building of the temple, and he finishes praying at the, the temple's dedication, at the amen of his prayer, fire comes from heaven, and the presence and glory of God fills the temple, and he dwells with his people again. However, over time, God's people repeatedly ditch God. They leave them behind. They do what they want, when they want. They completely disregard everything that God has said, all the commands he has given. And we're told in Ezekiel chapter 10 that eventually the presence of God leaves the temple. The temple is then destroyed. The people of Israel are carried away into exile. But in that same book of Ezekiel, God promises to renew his presence among his people. He promises to renew the broken relationship. He promises to forgive the people of their sins and to be with them. In Ezekiel chapter 48, um, God, God says the name of the city is going to be Jehovah Shammah, which means the Lord's there. Isaiah speaks of that very promise. And he says to, to his people, listen, God's going to draw near to you. God's going to show up. And the name, the name you will refer to him as is Emmanuel. God with us. And Jesus Christ God's son willingly took on the humiliation of coming in form and fashion as one of his created beings. God showed up. The very presence of God arrived in a manger. The very presence of God was both announced and celebrated by the heavenly hosts. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. 
God showed up. The very presence of God being traced from Genesis 1 all the way up to the birth of Jesus. Then you follow through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start seeing how Jesus is interacting with people. Jesus is leading his disciples. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is healing. Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is continuing to point towards the the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about how he has come to, to, to save the sick. He has come to be the one who rescues the sinner. He has come to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And, and the disciples are just tagging along Jesus, right? Been, they are fixated on everything he is doing. And a lot of times, they get it wrong. So very wrong. So Jesus, we're going to sit with you. We want to rule with you. We want to reign with you. We're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to make this place our own. It's going to be amazing, Jesus. And the un- absolute unthinkable happens. Jesus talks to his disciples. The height of his popularity. Everything has been amazing. This is going the right direction. And he says to them in John chapter 16, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Okay. Wrap your head around that one. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Jesus is looking at the disciples. He says, guys, I'm going to tell you something. It is going to be so much better for you if I leave. So much better for you. Because when I leave, then then the counselor will come. The the, the comforter will come. The the friend will come. The advocate. The one that can come alongside you in ways that I can't. The, The Holy Spirit is going to come. And the disciples have to be like, this is exactly the opposite of what we need. This is exactly the opposite of the promise. God with us. How can God be with us if you say to us, you're willingly leaving? How is it possible that the disciples would be better off without Jesus? How is it possible that you and I would be better off without Jesus but but have the presence of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to tell you right now, and I mean this with my entire being, I would fear absolutely nothing and no one if Jesus was right here with me. Right? Just give me a moment with Jesus and be like, yup, I'm taking on everybody. I would love to have Jesus every week stand in front of me and teach me. I, would, I, I, could, I could scale mountains. Nothing could possibly overcome me. I mean, tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, got this. All right, Jesus, you're with me? Yep, I'm with you. Cool. I can do anything. The problem is, because Jesus willingly humiliated himself and took on the form and fashion of humanity, that meant he willingly limited his ability to be everywhere at once. And so while I, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, have an appointment with Jesus and I'm going to decimate everybody who's in my path, I also must allow for him to go help you at work at 9. He's got to make sure his schedule is free so that he can be at home with you as you deal with your children at 11. You have that 1.30 doctor appointment. Jesus is going to go with you to that. So while when Jesus is with me, I would fear absolutely nothing. I would fear absolutely nothing for a very short amount of time. Because out of necessity, he would have to go serve others. 
Jesus says, boys, it's going to be so good for you. Because as I accomplish what is assigned to me to accomplish on the cross, that is going to allow for the comforter, the encourager, the counselor, the advocate, the friend to come alongside you. Do you you recognize something about, about that terminology with the Holy Spirit? All of those definitions, all of the words that can be used to define that word parakleo really come down to the fact that you're going through some stuff and this one that is coming is going to carry you through the thick of it. He's going to be with you in the darkness. He's going to carry you through the difficult days. And, and, and what Jesus says is, guys, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And this is just, Paul says, a down payment of your inheritance. You, in Christ, have the very presence of God with you at all times. That's why God can be with me at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And you, in your car at 8 o'clock in the morning trying not to burst into road rage. That's why God can be with the suffering and grieving mother, but on the other side of the room, laughing and celebrating with with the celebrating mother. Because the Holy Spirit is with us at all times, and holy smokes, do we need him. God could have easily just said, listen, I've given you the instructions, get to work. But our God loves us enough to know that the days are difficult, that the moments are are seemingly insurmountable at times. Our God loves us to know that this week holds unthinkable difficulty for many of us. But he's not going to leave us alone because our God loves us. Our God loves us so much that he is going to be with us. And heaven itself offers no greater gift than the presence of God himself. We have it so very good. And it all comes down to the truth that God loves us. That's a gift, isn't it? Father, thank you for the unspeakable gift of love that we get to experience in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the unspeakable gift of your presence that we get to enjoy each and every moment of each and every day as the Holy Spirit is with us. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are with us, that you equip us, that you prepare us, that you inform us, Oh God, I pray that in some some magnificent way that this morning somebody here would have that understanding of your love for them explode. God, would they recognize and realize that they are never alone. That you are always with us. And that this is just a little glimpse, a little taste of what we get to look forward to. Thank you. Thank you for loving us, even when we demonstrate that we are unlovable. (laughs) Thank you for your grace, and thank you for your mercy. 
It's in Christ's precious name and through the power of the Holy Spirit that I pray. Amen.